Welcome to the Insiders Insights Podcast, where we share with you the thoughts of the individuals who are working for projects that are changing the world. Welcome to the first episode of Insiders Insight. Before we begin, I think we should talk about the elephant in the room, which is what has happened to the Chuan Chuan podcast. Now, as I have alluded to in my latter episodes of the Chuan Chuan podcast, crypto has become a much greater part of my life, which is why in order to continue this podcast, I thought it would be best to pivot it so that it aligned with my interests. And therefore, uh, I'll be able to continue this podcast. Uh, there may be an episode of the Tron Tron podcast every now and again, but from this episode onwards, this podcast will be known as Insider's Insight. In today's episode, we have Jeff from the ENS team. And uh, because Jeff is one of my closest friends, um, I wanted him to be the first guest of this podcast. Now, um, you may recognize his voice because he's actually been on previous episodes of the Tron Tron podcast. And he is one of two co-hosts of the Island series. Um, so, yeah, just to begin, maybe you can tell our audience, Jeff, um, how did you start in crypto? How did you um, get involved with ENS? And for those who don't know what ENS is, maybe you can also tell the audience a little bit about um, what ENS is. Sure. Hi, Sean. Thanks for that introduction. Um, yeah, so how did I get into crypto? Um, I guess it was about five years ago now, 2016. Um, I was, I mean, I'm in Taiwan right now and I was in Taiwan back then. And, uh, I met a guy called Ram, who's one of my closest friends as well and one of my co-founders in a previous startup. And he basically was going on about Ethereum and he said to me, this was things going up. Um, you should have a look at it. It was, I think Ethereum was around about $4 at the time. And he basically said, oh, this thing is like Bitcoin, but a computer. But I didn't really know what Bitcoin was. So I was just like, what does that even mean? And uh, yeah, that was kind of like the start, basically. Um, from then, I, you know, I bought a little bit and kind of got into the community. And um, I think that year in 2016, I went to, to DevCon 2 in Shanghai. So like that was kind of like the start. Um, yeah, so from there, I just kind of moved on to, you know, developing in the space. I started doing a few side projects here and there. And I think in 2017, that's when I, I joined ENS. Um, at the time, it wasn't even really a company. It was just an offshoot of the Ethereum Foundation. So Nick Johnson founded the Ethereum um, name service. And at the time, he was working on Geth, which is the one of the clients that runs Ethereum and ENS was just a side project for him. So what happened was he wanted to effectively create a way to make, well, actually, maybe I should just talk a little bit about what ENS is first, and then it'll make more sense, like the introduction to ENS. So the Ethereum name service basically has three main use cases. Um, the first one is basically crypto making cryptocurrency payments easier by resolving a name to a cryptocurrency address. So that would be something like jefflad.eth to, you know, 0x123. The second is uh, decentralized websites, which is effectively like 
um, jefflow.eth to a, a website. And the last is, um, is the web three username use case, um, which is kind of like similar to like Facebook login, but for, for ENS. So our use case is kind of our, our product is basically trying to make things easier for people to use the blockchain. If you look at our logo, our logo is basically taking the, is taking the, the, um, hard edges of Ethereum. Okay. I see. Interesting. Interesting. And yeah, so continue. How did you get involved with ENS? Yeah. So yeah, 2017, um, that's when we released, uh, the auction registrar, which on May the 4th, which is, uh, Star Wars Day. Um, (laughs) (laughs) was that, was that intentional? It was intentional. Yeah. We originally wanted it on Pi Day, which was a couple months before, but we actually had a hiccup with the, um, kind of release. So, and actually I wasn't on, on the team at the time. I, I was like looking from afar. They delayed it a couple of months and made it Star Wars Day instead. I see. I see. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So how did you get started? When are you? Yeah. So uh, in 2017, um, they released a bunch of names on the, um, the auction registrar, which is basically an auction to allow people to bid. Uh, no one actually needed to spend any money. It was just a deposit to stop people from bidding on any name at all. You could take your ether back afterwards if you if you wanted to release the name and then that's when i got involved basically they needed someone to do the the manager the app for the um for ens so you could like manage your your name and change records that kind of thing and that's kind of how i got involved so they put out a a nick put out a ethlance uh proposal which is at the time it was just um it was literally entirely on chain it was kind of like um like an Odesk or like one of those platforms where you, you, know, you look for freelancers, but it was entirely on Ethereum. So you have to do all your like profile details on Ethereum. You had to do uh, all the proposals and payments on Ethereum. And so like, I think this kind of app would not be uh, suitable right now because literally everything was on chain, including, you know, even like profile data, but that was what we used at the time. And um, that's how I found the job. Uh, one of my friends uh, recommended me um, one of my colleagues now, Makita and, that's kind of how I, I got into the gig and I started building the manager and this took me like maybe two or three months. It was just kind of a freelance job. I didn't know it was going to turn into anything, but then in 2018, um, the ENS project got funding from the Ethereum foundation as a grant to kind of take it from a side project to like a, an actual thing. And, um, yeah, in 2018, we actually formed true names limited, which is the nonprofit company behind the Ethereum name service and the team. I think we got a $1 million grant. So we hired six or seven full-time people, including myself. And that's kind of the start of, uh, I guess, ENS as a proper entity as opposed to like a side project. Wow, that's that's super cool. Um, now, today's um, podcast is actually going to be on thinking in bets, which is something that you have um, executed in your life to great success wouldn't you say jeff maybe you can give a bit of an introduction on why you think it's important for people to start doing it especially young people because i feel that uh growing up in the traditional education system you don't really learn how to take risks and um, i think you managed to get a grasp of that concept very early on maybe you can just give a bit of a introduction on why you think it's important yeah, so Thinking in Bets is uh, it's actually a book by Annie Duke, um, and um, 
yeah, I haven't actually read the whole book, but the concepts of thinking in bets are something that's no, quite close to that. That book is um, she played po- uh, she played blackjack, right? No, no, she's a poker player. Oh yeah, but she learned it. She's like a professor, and then she learned it. Um, she learned how to. Uh, I think she she literally learned it to write this book, right? I think I heard no, no, her in a an, podcast. An, Annie Duke is a professional poker player, so I, th- I think she she turned she wrote the book. I mean, I don't know if she played blackjack or not, but um, uh, in the book, she she talks mainly about poker. Yeah, I I think I saw her in a podcast with um. We uh, study billionaires. We study billionaires. Yeah, yeah. Or she was with. She was on Freakonomics. But I think I've heard her story. It's very, very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm not too sure about her story, but I think the the concepts of the book are interesting because I think, like, without reading the book, it's something that I've applied to my life um, since I think since my early twenties. Basically, I started playing poker when I was like 18. Um, one of our close friends, uh, Juan, introduced me to to poker back then and i think it's allowed me to kind of take opportunities that i maybe not normally would and not just that but like deal with failure in a way that i you know not everyone can and i don't think it's a very like complicated concept the the idea of thinking in bets is that everything in your life every decision you make is a bet and what that means is, is that there is a chance you can succeed and there's a chance you can fail. And even though that that sounds silly almost to say it, it's like it's so obvious, obviously there's a chance you can succeed, it's not a chance you can fail. But I think a lot of, a lot of, I mean, even kids, right? Like they expect, they have expectations and the expectation is to 100% to, to win. So when they lose, it becomes a significant like downer on their lives. They can't deal with that, with that failure. Or on the other side, you expect 100% to fail, which kind of just means that like, you just don't try. You don't put your effort in. You know, you don't realize that actually, like, it may f- seem like you're gonna, you're gonna lose, but you might have had a 10, 20% chance to win. And, and that could have, you know, been enough in that situation. You know, the luck of the draw may have allowed you to, to succeed. And when you realize that everything is a bet and there is a chance you can win and there is a chance you can lose, you can deal with failure a lot more easier. Like, even though you know, that you may fail in this particular situation. Like if you try enough times, probability will probably let you win at some point. And that's kind of how you can, you can apply that to your life and not allow these failures to kind of kind of take hold of you and, and, and hold you back for too long. Um, why did you decide to play poker at that time? Uh, what kind of drew, drew, drove you over the edge to actually even begin? I think it wasn't really anything particularly special. It was just like, this game is kind of fun. It's, 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 it's a way to kind of make a little bit of cash. And, uh, I think it was very interesting because, I mean, poker is just like this kind of mix of like, you know, technical ability, which is like, you know, learn like the probabilities and the cards and strategies. But at the same time, you also need to like play your opponent, right? It's not a game where you have perfect information. It is a game of imperfect information. So, um, I think, those kind of games are quite fun to play because, you know, you get competitive, you can play against other people. And um, I think that part appealed to me that can, you know, that it's almost like a sport in a way. Did, did you, do you think that you have a natural inclination to, you know, be drawn to these kind of games? Or do you think that you, you developed it as you grew older? 
Hmm. I think, I mean, I think all of this kind of stems from maybe playing games when I was a kid. Like, I played a lot of competitive games when I was, like, I wouldn't say I was, like, good as, like, an esports player. I mean, I don't think there really was that many esports players at the time, but... I, I I always loved playing like games that were you know you could do PvP and um, you know games that like Counter Strike or um, you know real time strategies where you know you could kind of test your metal against other people and, and can compete. And I think like for me, it's always life has always been about improvement and you know learning learning and improving. And I think one of the ways you can do that is to you know throw yourself into the ring and just see how you do. And so I think that's been a kind of a recurring theme in my life to to be able to compete in a way. That's really interesting. You talk about these video games. Um, let's take Counter-Strike, for example, or, or, or these MMORPGs. Um, do you feel that there's more... Because poker has the... It's an imperfect game, right? It's skill and there's luck. Now, with these other video games, do you also feel like there was also an element of skill and luck? Or do you think that the skill basically trumps the luck? And that, uh, do you think, how similar do you think those games were to poker? Because I feel like when money gets involved, you know, you're, there's a certain fear about playing it because you could lose it. Whereas if you play these games, um, what, there's nothing to really lose. I guess your pride, but that's about it. No, yeah, I can see what you're alluding to. So I think you're you're right. I think the reason why, like, you, I started to compete in these games is because when you have more to lose, which is like, you know, I, if it's like a friendly game with your friends, you you don't really have anything to lose. It's just kind of like everything's fun and games. But if you compete with, you know, other clans, other guilds, other thing, other people that you don't know on the stage, it's kind of like poker in the sense that you know you're betting your reputation and like you're betting your pride that kind of thing and there is more to lose and i would say it's not quite the same like when you put your money where your mouth is um as we've seen with like crypto and stuff like that it's it's obviously very different like the like people really really care about the outcome and and that brings like it just makes everyone better in a way like if you've got something on the line and i do believe that having something on the line is important to to growing and um to taking risks um do you think that a lot of young people can make that trans or should make that transition from playing video games to then playing poker and then or playing or even investing like do you think that's a very natural transition one can make because a lot of the young generation they are really into games and i wonder if um, it's actually, it could be a very strong positive for them because, you know, there's a lot of negative media around playing games right now. Hmm. I think they don't necessarily need to play poker. I think it's just the, the concepts around taking risks that I learned from poker that, that really helped. But like you said, like, I guess investing would be like a similar thing. Um, I think being able to be in an environment where you can, like, take risks and put your money where your mouth is and learn from those mistakes and kind of learn to like, you know, I think one of the things I learned like from poker, it wasn't just about taking risks, right? Those little things like, you know, bankroll management, um, all these kind of things. I think bankroll management was super important for me because I think that's what a lot of people don't like when you take a bet, it's not just about just throwing money at this particular situation. You need to understand your own situation, which is like, okay, well, 
I mean, in poker, we have this rule, which is like the 2% rule. You don't put more than 2% of your bankroll into any game. And I mean, in, in investment, like it's, it's kind of similar, right? You know, you're taking like a one out of 50 of your portfolio to like put into this particular thing. And so if you, if you lose, you don't lose your entire bankroll. And obviously if you're playing in percentages, 2% will keep going all the way down. Your, your buy-in will be less and less and less and less. But the idea in poker is that, you know, you only move up the, the stakes when you have enough to play that stakes. You, you can't play in a, you know, $1, $2 game when you've only got 50 bucks. Like you don't even have enough for one game. Um, and I think that is something that allowed me to do well just in life where you just, you don't put too much in into any particular game and you know you're strict with that even though like you're in, in in poker we have this idea called tilting which basically means um you're not playing at your best and you're maybe angry from a, a a loss or something that's happened in a previous hand and when you're tilting you're not really thinking straight and you may put more than you can like should be losing in one game like you might take all your money and put it on one on one bit one bet um and that's what i kind of learned not to do because whether it's in crypto or in poker or investment it's not really a game of like pure skill it's a game of, at, at the at the top it basically it's a game of survival if you can last you can if you can survive long enough you win if you stay in the market you win if you if you bust out that's it you know it's over like getting that initial investment back is is the hardest thing to do i think you mentioned previously you wanted to talk about that the uh, the concept of expected value ev maybe you can share to our audience what ev is and how that's um you know influenced the way you think or the way you go through life Sure. Yeah. So like EV is also, um, like, a something that I learned from poker. I think it does exist elsewhere, but, um, the idea is basically that when you make a decision, it's either, you know, uh, positive EV, negative EV, or it's just kind of neutral. And, um, I can give you a quick example from poker, but the basic idea is if, if you are in a, let's say like if you're, you're you're in a hand pre-flop which means like right at the beginning i've got two cards you've got two cards and i've got um aces and you've got ace king and basically in this particular situation i'm completely dominating you and i'm i'm, I'm like something like 90 percent to win if i if we put all our money in before i'm like 90 percent to win which which basically means it's positive ev for me to 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 go into the hand like pretty much every single time and this is easy to understand because I've got such a big hand, but you can also have positive EV when you have a hand that is losing. So for instance, um, I mean, I'm not sure how much your audience knows about poker, so we'll, we'll just kind of like make it quite easy. But if I have a hand that is losing, like I don't, like I, I need one more card to make a straight or one more card to make a flush, that kind of thing. Um, and then you have aces. So basically I'm not winning, but I only have to put a little bit more into the pot to kind of match you and, and see the, the last card. Even if I've only got 20% to win, if I only have to put 10% more money into the pot, this is a positive EV bet. It basically means that every single time I should be putting this money in because over a long enough time period, like we talked about with survival, over a long enough time period, I should win enough of these to make my money back because I'm putting in 10% for a 20% chance to win. Mm. 
And I think this general idea can be played across your life. Like if you only have to invest a little bit of time, like maybe you're just going to go to an interview or something like that and you really feel like you're not going to make it, but like you still have a 20% chance to get it or 10% chance to get it and you need to put like a little bit of time in. I think those kind of opportunities are very positive EV. And even though, and all you need to be able to do is take the loss, like know that you're probably going to lose 90% of the time, but that 10% chance that you're going to win or 10% chance when you do win, like probabilistically you will win at some point, you'll be okay and you'll make it and you'll make the next step. But you just need to be able to take all the, the crap in between where, you know, you feel rubbish because you're constantly being rejected. You're constantly losing. Yeah, I, I mean, so firstly, EV is actually a term, a concept taught in finance, because um, when you're valuing projects or stocks or all of these stuff, you're basically you you're calculating um, the expected value that you can make or that it's worth. And that's how you come up with all of these models. So there's a lot of similarities between finance and playing poker. But I think um, something interesting you said was thinking about your life in probabilities and in payoffs and it's it's quite difficult to do that to be honest maybe you can think of an example of like a big decision you've made where you've actually thought about the probability and about the payoffs and and then you've managed to come up with an ev calculation maybe you can come up with an example that's not so obvious like it's obvious when there's numbers involved like poker there's obvious probabilities or finance but maybe other decisions where it's not so obvious and you've actually um, try to utilize that concept in your everyday life? Mm, let me think. I think, I mean, there's definitely a few cases in my life where um, I've made decisions that have really paid off and it would be easy for me to say at the time that like, oh, I didn't know what's going on, but now it paid off. Like for instance, actually one of the things that really got, so I, I obviously got into Ethereum and um, crypto um, because of my friend Ram, but actually the way I met the one of the other people that, that really made an effect on my life, Makoto, um, th- the way I actually ended up meeting him was through a Medium article he had posted about Ethereum. And all I did was I commented on it and uh, he replied to me and me and him were learning Ethereum around the same time. And actually that was one of the reasons why I ended up working at ENS because because I met him then at the time, he was working full time at a at, at a blockchain insurance company. Oh, actually, sorry, it wasn't even a blockchain. It was just an insurance company in the UK. And um, he knew Nick like from like you know Ethereum meetups. And Nick was obviously looking for a front end developer to do this manager app at the time, but he obviously couldn't do it because he was working full time. Whereas I was like working in part time teaching JavaScript, and and so I had I had time on my hands. So he actually recommended to me. So. I think at the time it was like, okay, well, there's no way I would have known like, oh, commenting on this article would meet, make me meet my future, one of my future co-founders and my future colleagues at ENS and also give me this opportunity for, for ENS. But I think a lot of the time, I think just taking those little moments where like, you know, I could have chosen not to, to kind of interact and um you know be active in my community and i think i would have been a lot worse off and it those i think a lot of those bets are all really 
positive EV. Like you put in a tiny, tiny bit of time to plant a seed. And I mean, I think there's a lot to do with like networking and I'm not a very good networker, but like I have seen seemingly taken some, some very positive EV bets where like I put in a tiny, tiny bit of time and that relationship has grown into something that has, you know, compounded year on year into like a friendship or a, um, a working relationship that has gone to benefit me, you know, 100,000 times fold or something ridiculous, right? And obviously there's no money involved here. So you don't think about this as a positive or negative EV bet, but it's compound and it's compounded so much that like, you know, I can't imagine like it snowballs so much. I can't, I really imagine if I keep going, I keep on going backwards, right? Like, and just thinking, oh, if I hadn't making that decision, I wouldn't be in crypto. Well, I wouldn't be in programming to, to, to get into crypto. Well, I wouldn't have been into, you know, X, Y, Z. And so I don't know if that's a practical example because it kind of, it's more like a, like how something has snowballed into like an avalanche as opposed to like a very practical uh, EV calculation. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're, what you've basically just described is it's, it's, it's better to do something that has such a low effort threshold than to not do it. I mean, with that medium post, you could have not posted, but it was like such a little bit of an effort from you to do it. And because you did put a comment out there, it's just basically changed the course of your life. And that's been, um, something that, people should basically do uh i have another question and then maybe we can move on to the next part of the podcast which is i wanted to know your opinion about conviction now um earlier this year i made a massive decision to basically put in all of my liquid wealth into crypto just because i knew that through my number of years of you know researching and working and just trying to figure out what made sense that uh, to not be all in on crypto was dangerous, at least for me. And so, I mean, that was very high conviction and, and luckily it has paid off. Um, where does conviction come into your uh, mind, work, mind frame, your framework of thinking? Yeah, so I would say that like going back to the whole bankroll management thing, like generally that's kind of how I start, you know, I, I dip my toes in, I put in, you know, 2% here, 1% here, whether it's time or money, that kind of thing. <clears throat> but I think when you get to a point where you believe in something or you feel like this thing is something that is, you know, even if you made no money from it, you'd be happy doing it. That is where I make my high conviction bets. Like I think people talk about it as like a kind of like a barbell strategy, that kind of thing. And um, where you, you have a very heavy conviction in like maybe you know a couple of like strong or stable bets and i felt like you know crypto and the ethereum community like that those are my my, my pillars and having high conviction and, and kind of kind of throwing away the like the you know the one or two percent rules and just kind of going pretty heavy into those um i think that served me well yeah in my life in general and it does throw caution to the wind on like bankroll management, but at the same time, you are still bankroll managing like, you know, your high risk bets, like things that you don't know if they're going to pay off, but if they do, they might go a hundred X or a thousand X. How, how do you decide to, to, um, have high conviction? You just, um, like what factors come to play when you make that decision? I think for me, I'm kind of a nerd. So once I, 
get into something, I just, I research the hell out of it. You know, I go into the details, whether that's like technical details or like the community or like, so for instance, if it was like Ethereum or something like that, at the time it was like, wow, this is doing something like that no other blockchain at the time is doing, you know, smart contracts on a blockchain. We've got all these really, really smart people in a room building this tech. Nothing else is doing anything like it. You know, it, it, I don't know if there's any factors specifically that made me have a high conviction, but say in specifically in Ethereum, but it was kind of like, if you keep going and you do your deep, deep research and after that, you don't feel like appalled by any of it. I think I would make probably a larger bet in that space. And then as you, I kind of, I'm like a terrible trader, right? So I, I wouldn't take any of my trading advice, but what I generally do is I, I end up longing my longs. So if something seems to be even better, like I'll start to get even heavy into it. And, and that's kind of how I end up doing things until like, you know, I either have no more money to invest or I've got no more time to invest. <laughs> and, and I think that just kind of compounds, right? Like, you know, I don't go in a hundred percent right at the beginning, but I do my deep research. I put in, you know, 10% of my time or 10% of my money. And as it starts to grow and as it starts to snowball, I actually go heavier into it, not lighter into it. And so I think like the idea of compounding really, really makes sense to me. Perfect. Um, so just to finish off, we've got a couple of questions from the community. The first question is, as one of the largest airdrops in history, oh, how did you come up with the decision on how to uh, form the the way you're going to airdrop the DAO. It's clear that a lot of work went into that decision. Okay. Um, sh- should I maybe go into a little bit more about ENS? Um, I feel like it's a gap. In between. Uh, do you, would your listeners know specifically about ENS? Or? Yeah, yeah. Go briefly talk about um, the idea behind e- Well, more just elaborate a bit more to the introduction. That would be fine. Okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mentioned in the introduction, there was these kind of like three main parts of, of ENS, which is, um, easy cryptocurrency payments and then decentralized websites and the web three username. And I think the idea of ENS now is to, you know, like I said, to like soften these hard edges of Ethereum. Like Ethereum is this kind of very, um, cryptographic heavy, you know, lots of hashes, lots of like things that if you're not familiar with crypto, it's going to be kind of scary to look at. And we just want to be something that creates a very um, smooth user experience for the blockchain community. And it's not just within Ethereum. Like at the beginning, it was kind of this idea of like softening Ethereum. But now we're like, okay, well, we everyone needs this kind of naming solution. We need this solution to kind of soften the edges of crypto in general, blockchain in general. So... Um, that's kind of where we're going with it now. We, we like the, I can actually elaborate on, on the, um, the third use case, which is the, the web three username. The idea is basically you can take your cryptocurrency address and you can get, you can have a thing called a primary ENS username, which is basically, you know, let's say it's yishion.eth and it basically can go from your address, which is when you sign in with like MetaMask, that kind of thing. Um, it can go and find your name and then it will show that name instead of your address. So instead of it being like, I'm paying to yishon.eth, it's basically like, oh, I'm signing into Uniswap and the address will um, turn into yishon.eth. So you just see yishon.eth there instead. And 
Um, so it's kind of like a nice user experience. And you can see this quite uh, quite a lot in Etherscan. So people have their primary ENS username set up. You'll see these uh, ENS names instead of the, um, the Ethereum address. And we can go even further with that, which is basically, well, every ENS name can also um, resolve records. So this is kind of like... This is kind of like how DNS works as well, right? You just have like a name and you have a bunch of records. And, and those the, the main records for DNS is just an IP address. And for us, obviously it's like Ethereum addresses, but you can also have arbitrary text records, which can um, basically just any arbitrary piece of information. And so one of the ones that we standardized recently is the avatar record. And that basically allows you to put like a picture, one of your NFTs or some JPEG into um, your ENS name. And from your address, as you can see, you can resolve your ENS name from your cryptocurrency address. And then from your ENS name, I can resolve your avatar. So from your address, I can go eshawn.eth and then this avatar of a jellyfish or something like that. And then I can take that jellyfish and I can put that, like say on your Uniswap uh, profile or something like that. And so this idea of building profiles, your Web3 username profile at um, on top of ENS, is something that we're really, really interested in right now. It basically allows you to like take your your cryptocurrency address and take your profile with you anywhere, basically. So whether it's on Uniswap, on Sushi, or you know, in the future, like social networks within on, on top of Ethereum, that kind of thing. Um, and so I think like the vision now of ENS is to kind of go down this path of decentralized identity and allow us to you know give people. Um, a way of uh, kind of taking control of their data in a way. And so with that vision in mind, like, and uh, with that vision in mind, we, we, we basically don't, we, we as a protocol, as a piece of infrastructure of the blockchain uh, community, we don't want to be entirely controlled of that. So we would just be another system that is controlled by a private company. Um, and, like the community wouldn't have no say over it, over it. And we view ourselves as a piece of Web3 infrastructure, like the roads of blockchain in a way. And so we felt that us being entirely in control of this thing wasn't the right way to do things, which is how we kind of got to the DAO. And so the idea with DAO and the token is basically we're essentially exiting to the community in a way. Um, so the allocation was uh, about 25% of the team, 25% for the airdrop and then 50% of the DAO. So basically the community has around 75% of the protocol. And with the token, the token basically governs the DAO and the DAO, um, with the proposals that are going in actually, I think yesterday, um, it depends on how the vote goes. They'll have control over all the contracts on ENS, which would mean that they can have control over the funds. They'll also be able to like change the contract. So if, if True Names Limited, the nonprofit wants to say make a protocol upgrade, it actually needs to ask the DAO for permission. Like, you know, here's the code for this. Does this make sense to um, to do? And the community has control over it in a way. Um, so yeah, sorry, that was a brief introduction on the ENS and DAO. So um, what was the question again? Maybe I can answer that now. Um, so what factors came into the decision of you know how you were going to allocate the airdrop? Right. Yeah. So. Essentially, I think we've taken um, a leaf out of like Gitcoin's book. And I think 
it wasn't like super scientific, but the idea was we wanted the community to have more of this protocol than us. We don't have any VCs. We don't really have any investors. We've only been funded by like uh, one or two grants from mainly the Ethereum Foundation. I think we've got a grant from Chainlink at a small amount as well. Um, so we don't have any investors. And I, I, and so the idea for the allocation was mainly, you know, of course, um, I think very simply it was kind of like 50% for the past, 50% for the future. Future. So like the future is the DAO and that, that hasn't been allocated yet. Essentially it's in the DAO. And for the past, we split and we kind of split that 50-50 again. So 50% for the core contributors, not just like the, the, the team, but just there's also external contributors. I think there's over a hundred of them, including like different applications, that kind of thing. Uh, that also integrated ENS in the early days. And then 50% for uh, people that used um, ENS. So that was that was mainly the airdrop, um, which was about 25 million tokens to 137,000 accounts across Ethereum. I really like that concept. 50% for the past and 50% for the future. It's, uh, it's very zen. Uh, yeah. La- last question. What's your family members' uh, interaction with crypto? What was their reaction when you got into it? I mean, I don't think they really knew what I was doing. I think the first family member I got into crypto was my brother. And I actually told him about Ethereum like when it was about 20 or 40 dollars or something like that and we were hiking in hong kong and i was telling him about this thing and i didn't really know how to talk about it i was just talking about how like it's decentralized in the future and you know it's it's, it's like it's going to change the world and i think he thought i was a bit crazy um until i i gifted him one eth for his like birthday i think it was like 40 dollars or something like that and he he just kind of saw the the kind of meteoric rise of of, of the coin and I mean, now he's like more into crypto than even than I am. Like, uh, he doesn't work in crypto, but he's just like very into the research and, and that kind of thing. And I would say like that's like probably the only success story within my family. But um, I think my my parents still don't know, you know, really what it is. They're just kind of like, oh, I can see the Bitcoin price in the Financial Times now. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much for being our first guest. Um, it's been a great episode and. Yeah, wish you all the luck for your future endeavors. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. See you guys. Bye-bye.